Good morning and welcome to Back Chat. I'm Janice Wong and your guest presenter is Danny Gittings. On today's program, we're talking about the role of artificial intelligence in education. Many schools have banned the use of disruptive technologies like ChatGPT, but some have chosen to embrace it. There are several potential benefits to using an AI language model like ChatGPT in schools. For example, it can provide quick and accurate answers to student questions, assist with research and writing, and offer personalised feedback on assignments. However, it's important to note that AI language models like ChatGPT are not a substitute for human teachers or tutors. It cannot offer the same level of personalised attention and support that a human teacher can provide. Additionally, there are concerns about the potential for bias or errors in AI systems. We'll be discussing this further in a moment with our panel of experts. And after 9.45, we'll speak to an environmentalist about the 200 solar panels washed up on Hong Kong shores. Let us know what you think. You can leave a message on our Facebook page Backchat on RTHK Radio 3, email us at backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call on 233-88266. Now to uh, kick off our discussion this morning, we have in our Kowloon Tong studio, Kevin Pereira, Managing Director of Blue Artificial Intelligence, Professor Eric Friginal, Head of the Department of English and Communication at the Polytechnic University, and Ryan Whalen, Associate Professor at the University of Hong Kong's Faculty of Law. Good morning to you all, and uh, thanks for joining us on the program. Um, not sure if any of you notice. I'm, unfortunately, I know Kevin already knows because Danny told you. But just now, what Danny read out in the introduction was actually generated by an AI chatbot. <laughs> I, I simply just typed out, um, should chat GPT be used in schools? And it gave me, um, well, quite a well thought out answer for an so AI chatbot. Have chat you bot. asked it whether chat GPT can replace back chat hosts? No, yeah, I don't dare to <laughs> ask, ask it that. Um, so, so Kevin, for First of all, um, many of us know ChatGPT is a very powerful tool. Um, can you first explain what ChatGPT is capable of? Sure. So uh, ChatGPT is effectively a, a tool that you can use to provide you know, text uh, uh, questions, and it would give you the responses from a text uh, perspective. I think the newer versions of, of ChatGPT, specifically GPT-4, can also do this with input from pictures as well. So I think it's actually pretty exciting in terms of what the possibilities are. Uh, maybe one of the ways uh, people who are not familiar can think about it is, is uh, sort of the ultimate autocomplete. Right? You give it a question, you give it a, a sort of request, and it comes back and it gives you uh, the response uh, you know, in, in, in the way that you ask it for. So the prompt there is actually very, very important. But it only goes up to 2021, doesn't it? Uh, yes. In terms of the data for ChatGPT specifically, it's 2021. I think the future versions in GPT-4, I think the data set's a little bit bigger. Right. If it is that powerful, is it really suitable for, uh, for use in schools or universities? Uh, Professor Friginal, what's your take on this? That's something that we are exploring at the moment. And uh, uh, with, with what Kevin mentioned, uh, we utilize chat GPT as kind of like the default, but there are many out there uh, as well, right? So um, AI layered uh, language models or LLMs uh, and then chat GPT is the leading um, uh, version of this or uh, component. Uh, but there are many of them uh, now really easily accessible even for us here in Hong Kong. And it's very, very promising. So similar to what you guys read, uh, uh, written for us by ChatGPT at the intro, um, you used the term uh, disruptive. And, th and that is something in the education circles, uh, you know, for, for us to empirically study. Is it really disruptive or 
could there be a positive positioning of it in the classroom? Could it be transformative uh, even? Right now, this is really just at the very early stages. I mean, I was involved in the early applications of ChatGPT in late November, and uh, it, it seems like a very, very long time ago uh, compared to now. So uh, to answer your question, uh, Janet, it's really something um, for us to learn from. I am a very uh, strong supportive uh, supporter of ChatGPT in the classroom. I understand the risks, and uh, but I'm really very helpful about how it could actually be uh, adapted and um, leveraged across very many activities in the classroom. Right. So, so you let your students use ChatGPT in their work. Um, do you also um, use ChatGPT to to mark their work? Um, I, I um, yes and yes. Uh, for both. Uh, but I know that I have responsibilities when it comes to informing the students directly. You know, the good, uh, important thing to consider is for the students and for myself as an instructor to know that we all know what it is about, right? So all of us know what it is. I know what they know. They know what I know, right? So um, there, there are no surprises and there are expectations that um, we have to, uh, from the very beginning, of how it could be integrated in an activity, like, for example, writing a response to uh, an essay prompt or an essay question, right? Uh, I know what they know, and I know that I expect them to check for accuracy. Uh, you know, uh, the term that many people use uh, about the mistakes uh, created in the, the outputs is the hallucination. You know, there is a tendency for uh, ChatGPT to say something that is not accurate uh, because of the model. You know, it, it's uh, logical, but then there's really um, uh, accuracy isn't uh, there yet. So I know and I want my students to know that, hey, uh, you need to check this. You know, you're responsible to ensuring uh, quality and also the ethics uh, of it. The second side of it is my assessment. You know, I actually haven't used the whole because ChatGPT uh, and many others like it can produce a response to an output. You know, you can tell it to, hey, here's the output, um, write a, a summary response about uh, the criteria that I can provide and how will you analyze this output. You know, it's a possibility that technically ChatGPT could write the essay and ChatGPT could analyze the essay as well, right? That's the funny thing about that. But uh, there is, uh, for teachers, if you're dealing with 150 essays, uh, for example, then there could be a way to leverage that option. I won't utilize it because I want my answers, my comments, my feedback to my students to be really personal. And so I wanted really a personal response. But there could be a way for ChatGPT to help me in providing some of the okay. initial responses. Okay, okay. Uh, let's bring in the uh, third of our guests, uh, Ryan Whalen, who's Associate Professor at the Faculty of Law at University of Hong Kong. And before we do, I'll just br briefly notice uh, some some listeners will know I also work for a uh, branch of Hong Kong U, a different branch, Hong Kong U Space, but of course I'm not speaking on behalf of Hong Kong U or Hong Kong U Space here. Uh, Ryan, Ryan Whalen, um, Hong Kong U has taken a fairly strong stance, hasn't it, on ChatGPT, at least initially? So, uh, yes, uh, thank you, Danny. I think you're, you're right. They've been relatively uh, clear that by default, uh, the use of ChatGPT by students will be treated um, as sort of an academic uh, dishonesty issue. I will say I think uh, that that has maybe been slightly overblown in that the policy does give faculty members the freedom to use ChatGPT in their classrooms and to empower their students to use ChatGPT. So, again, I don't speak on behalf of HTU, yeah. but my understanding of the policy is that 
if uh, faculty members such as myself want their students to use uh, ChatGPT or other uh, chatbots or large language models, then they're they're totally capable to do so. I just last night I was teaching a, a data science class, and I I told my students that you know if you're while you're developing your code, you want to consult either the internet. You know, people use Stack Overflow, which is a website for for programmers all the time, or uh, a generative AI to help you develop your code. That's fine with me because it, it reflects uh, the real world, and I think that's uh, an important thing for us to note is that as university educators, we're training students to live in the world that we actually live in, not you know the world that existed 24 months ago. And so we have to equip them with the skills that they're going to need to be able to function in this world. And so to completely shut off access to ChatGPT uh, within the educational context uh, probably won't help them do that. So it's, it's my policy, at least, and I, I believe it's the, the capability of other faculty members to have it be their policy that students can use ChatGPT provided the faculty member uh, agrees and is, is cognizant of that. And looking forward, how, I mean, so obviously you're already using ChatGPT, it's going to play a role in education, but how, is it going to be a, a principal tool or is it just going to be something we add to our a wide array of tools we already use? I mean, how important a role do you think it's going to play in the teaching process? So I think it's very hard to say, and I think it will vary a lot based on the substance of the course in question. Um, I, I will say the discussions we're having, like the one we're having here today, uh, is in some ways reminiscent of the way we were talking about the Internet back in the 1990s, right? There were some people who had said, you know, the Internet is going to destroy the need for universities. Students are going to be able to sit at home and teach themselves whatever they want. And there probably were other people who were saying, oh, we shouldn't use the Internet in classroom. It's going to make it too easy for students to find information. They have to go to the library and learn to find information that way. Um, but we have to, you know, be uh, cognizant of reality. And the reality here is that for certain tasks, generative AI models are going to be exceptionally helpful. And those tasks include things like um, summarizing information, uh, communicating information, etc. What the instructor needs to be aware of is that you need to still equip students with the capacity for critical thought and reasoning. And that will, how that works is going to vary based on, on discipline, on academic discipline. So, you know, the scientific training is a, it's a trains students to do a specific style of thinking, legal training, trains students to do a, a particular style of, of thinking, and that's going to vary, but the, there will be, a, I think, a role to play for generative AI in most of these disciplines in a, in a slightly varied capacity. All right, Kevin, um, you're, you also, uh, you're also a lecturer as well. Um, what do you think of uh, ChatGPT's potential uh, as an education tool? I mean, does it outweigh the, the risks? I mean, in my view, uh, this tool, like a lot of other tools, is going to be available to students once they graduate. And my sense is, you know, with a lot of jobs, we're going to see what I what I like to describe as task automation. Right? So the idea that there's a job consists of certain tasks. Some of them are easy to automate. Some of them are hard to automate. So then the real question, I think, is going to be these tools are going to automate some pieces. And then we're going to see these um, students potentially be able to use that going forward. So I think if they're going to use it after school, then they should be given, at least in my opinion, the ability to use it before then. And then they should be able to 
to you know at least use it responsibly in a, in a sort of smart way. So I'm I'm a fan of it. I, I think it does make sense kind of going forward. Uh, there needs to be like I think a few of uh, you know the other folks said. Uh, we need to understand how to use it in the right way, though. So that's basically checking it beforehand or checking the output before you're going to use it somewhere. And then also, you know, using it in a way where maybe uh, later on we might come up with standards of citing it. You know, I think that's another area that people are exploring potentially. So if you do use this tool, can you, in your output, also say that you have used it? And is there a responsible way to do that? So I think that will be also be another interesting uh, aspect going forward as well with using these tools. And, and how about this particular problem that at least the current versions, I haven't tried ChatGPT4, but at least the, the other versions, they, they just blend f fact and fiction together. I mean, and if you, <clears throat> and I recommend anyone to try, try asking ChatGPT to describe, write a biography yourself. And you see there's a, obviously you, or some subject you know, mm -hmm. you know which bits are fact and which are fiction. But mm -hmm. when you're dealing with something which you you don't know, then it's it's very di difficult to disentangle the two. Yes, and that's why it's so so important to read the output and review it and make sure that it, the facts that it picks up are actually true. So you know, I think copy and pasting the output directly, terrible, absolutely terrible idea. I think it really is incumbent upon people to look at the output, verify it, and then take it from there. Right. I was actually discussing or, or talking about this uh, topic with my colleague uh, yesterday, and, and she told me that uh, her daughter's a friend who, who, I mean, they're in high school. Um, she told her daughter that she actually used ChatGPT to do her homework. And we're talking about high schoolers here. Um, should there be an age limit? I know you guys have been talking about the benefits of using ChatGPT at universities, but um, is it really suitable for, for younger students? Um, Kevin, maybe? Uh, sure, you know, so so my sense, again, I think uh, as younger students, uh, they probably have the tool there, probably should have access to it, but there could be a, a little bit of a view in terms of responsibility there. So I personally don't teach that age group, so hard for me to comment because like some people said before, how you use a tool probably is a little bit subject dependent. Right, so my class that I teach is focused on AI at a few schools here, so I have to teach it, right? So I, I don't really have an option, um, but I think it would depend on the uh, curriculum and also what uh, the objectives and the learning objectives are for uh, teachers in those high schools or, or, or younger years as well. Right. Uh, Professor Friginal, what's your view? I mean, you teach English. I mean, um, should we be concerned uh, if young kids rely on Chad GPT for writing essays too much, for example? I mean... Will they be able to improve their own writing or, or be able to write properly? That's a great question, and I uh, totally agree with Kevin. My background also is the university, so I'm not directly involved um, in, in uh, young kids' education. But I have been actually following, I'm involved in a couple of research projects, uh, materials design and materials production for young learners utilizing ChatGPT. And there are uh, different participating schools, primarily in the southeastern uh, United States, and they're actually uh, employing this. They're utilizing it for various activities for young learners. It could be about writing uh, short essays. It could be correction uh, of uh, data and accuracy of information. So there are already some uh, either a long type uh, output for an assessment or a short-term classroom activity in, uh, in a you know, uh, laboratory type uh, environment where a teacher can have information and have the students 
uh, one group of the students writing responses themselves without the aid of AI, the second group utilizing AI and then uh, creating something, and then for them to compare and contrast, you know, what's better, what's working, what's not working, how did AI benefit the creation of the content, the final output, and then for a teacher, you know, if you're really focused on having the students uh, pay attention to accuracy, then you can tweak it a little bit, you know, to, to kind of like put together things there that they should discover as wrong, you know, they should discover as inaccurate, uh, but then for them to realize that, hey, I still control this, you know, and what Kevin mentioned, you know, uh, for students to know that, hey, it's copying and pasting, that's the unethical way of doing things, right? This is not your name, uh, your name should not be associated to this output because it's uh, something created by something for you, you know, and so we have to let the students know, and so for me, uh, as early as possible, because the tool is going to be here. And here we are talking about it. It started in November, you know, so eventually it's all going to be accessible. It's on my phone uh, here in Hong Kong. So uh, all, all of the people are going to be accessing this and eventually having everybody know what it is uh, is a great start for myself. And you're talking about how it could be used in the classroom and you can run sort of test cards. You have one group, students using it and the other group not. Um, but how, how about outside the classroom? That, that's really where the issue rises, doesn't it, right? And in terms right. of assessments, I mean, I, I've heard a, a lot of academics suggesting that in future basically all assessments are going to have be moved back into classrooms because um, you'll just have no control over what's happening outside a class. I mean, you can't use Turnitin for um, ChatGPT. Turnitin is an anti-plagiarism software. You can't use that for ChatGPT. But there will also be other, uh, you know, there's a GPT-0 and many similar um, applications that can run uh, an output and uh, for uh, it to tell the teacher how much of it uh, was potentially generated by AI. So there's, uh, you know, another way, and, and Turnitin also is uh, coming up with their own AI detector uh, tool, right? So, but you're right. I mean, in terms of uh, at this stage, if we are not yet equipped um, to uh, fully understand what's, what, what was AI generated, then there is that question, and some people are saying, well, maybe my assessment will have to be different. Maybe it should be an in-person oral presentation, you know, instead of relying on the final output. Uh, but one thing, really, that we also have to teach, and I, this is uh, piggybacking on what Kevin mentioned earlier, is there's integrity involved, right? So it's not like uh, uh, authorship has to be original authorship has to be uh for the writer to indicate that yeah this is my generated work and i am uh, an editor of a uh, um a relatively big journal called um, Applied Corpus Linguistics. This is published by a publisher called Elsevier, which is one of the biggest publishers in the world for academic uh, publications. And they came out recently with their own policy for AI-generated content for authors. And uh, this basically has the specifics about, oh, you cannot uh, use um, ChatGPT as a co-author, uh, but then you have to fully uh, disclose information if you utilize ChatGPT in any part of your paper um, and that you know so many of these spe uh, specifics for me are important because it will tell us that yes accountability is the next big important component of it let people say that they used it let people disclose that fully and then we can move on into like uh, still um, assessing the content still making sure that it makes sense and that it's a good study as a good contribution to the field as a professor for regional as an author myself it's just occurred to me as you were talking i mean chat gpt could be invaluable for incredibly boring tasks like indexing your books couldn't it that, that kind of you think about how many hours it takes to index a book uh, you just ask chat gpt to do it and that's not an issue of misrepresentation or plagiarism is it 
I, yeah, I mean, and, you know, Kevin, it's, it's, it's just, um, or sorry, Danny, this is something for us to philosophically study. I mean, technically, what ChatGPT produced for us is not necessarily plagiarism, you know, like who, who was ChatGPT? That's true, because you're not, you're not, you, yes, uh, yes. Yeah, it's not somebody else, you know, yeah. although it's a collective information from, uh, you know, the internet or from the corpus, right? Uh, but it's not attributable to any one person. So, I mean, I, I am just really fascinated by the philosophical applications of all these, particularly about the creation of content. Um, you know, there, there, there was an, uh, an article from The Atlantic uh, in, in early December reflecting on this, and it's more like, oh, the end of the essay, as we know it. And I, I just feel like there's something about it, but then I'm hopeful that, hey, but it's creating a new paradigm for, for the rest of humanity. Well, well let's ask um, Brian Whalen about it. the end of the essay. Uh, I think probably not. Um, I think it's maybe useful to think about why we have students write essays, right? Like, what is the point of having a student write an essay? It's not, in mo for most instances at least, it's not because the essay itself is going to be a great contribution to, to culture. Uh, we're training students, right? We're training students to, to communicate ideas and to express themselves. And ultimately, I think if ChatGPT or other AI, generative uh, AI models uh, are going to be used in, in communication and the expression of ideas going forward, which seems highly likely, then we have to be able to design assessments in such a way that students are able to use ChatGPT or generative AI models generally to express themselves and to communicate. So obviously they're not going to learn much if they're just putting a prompt into a box and then cutting and pasting the entirety of the output and submitting that as their own work. That's, that's a clear case, right? That's, they're not going to learn anything from that, except maybe out of and pace, and that's a pretty easy skill for them to learn. What we need to train them to do is to, um, is to deal with that GPT or generative AI as a tool. So how do you use it to help you communicate thoughts that you have or things that you would like to express? And this might change, you know, the way we actually do assessment, right? It might not be anymore just giving students an essay prompt and telling them to go home and come back with an essay two weeks later. Uh, it might require them submitting work in an iterative fashion, right? So having them write a thesis statement and then using that thesis statement to slowly iteratively build a document that communicates and expresses the ideas that they want to communicate and express. Because ultimately, our goal as educators is to equip the students with skills. And so we want to teach them to use the tools that they have accessible to them um, to actively engage in, in society that exists today. So I don't think it's going to be the end of the essay, but it likely will change the way we engage in essay-based assessment. All right. And uh, Professor Whelan, I mean, so far, I mean, all of you are sort of supportive of uh, ChatGPT, but, but do you think uh, we need to regulate it somehow or, or can we control it? Uh, so I am a... In my, my day job, I'm a technology law scholar, so I do think a lot about the way we regulate technologies, and I think um, we should move very slowly when we move to regulate new technologies unless there's an absolutely pressing need to do so. And that's because we simply don't know how to design an appropriate regulatory regime right now to try to regulate generative AI models. Uh, we don't know really what the concerns are, so there are some conjectural, highly conjectural concerns about potential harm, but like I said, they're highly conjectural. We don't know if they're reality-based at all, if they'll ever come to fruition. 
Uh, and so unless there's a pressing need to institute some sort of regulatory regime from the state, I think uh, we should have a, a relatively laissez-faire approach to regulating generative AI at this stage. Uh, and that will allow the technology the freedom to develop uh, that it needs. And then if and when we do feel some sort of pressing need for regulation, states can then step in and start to design appropriate regulatory frameworks. But I think it's, it's too early really to talk about that. And is it really possible to control access? I mean, we think about ChatGPT is not officially available in Hong Kong, but people already accessing it widely surely suggest it's very difficult to control access anyway. Absolutely. Yes, you're right. So, it's hard to control access, and it's not the only tool, right? There's, there's more out there, and there's going to be more. There will be many more like tools developed over the next 12 months. And so trying to simply ban you know, specific IP addresses is, is, is going to be like the state's going to be playing a, a game of whack-a-mole with the state we're trying to regulate access to, to these sorts of AI models. All right, and uh, we'll, we'll have to take a break for the news uh, very soon. Um, let's uh, continue our discussion afterwards and when we will be joined by Henry Al from Algobot Limited. Now, um, if uh, any of you want to have any questions for our guests or just want to share your views on today's topics, you can leave a message on our Facebook page and back chat on RCHK Radio 3. Email us at backchat at rchk.hk or give us a call on 233-88266. And uh, here's a quick look at the weather, mainly cloudy with a few showers, more showers and isolated thunderstorms later. The top temperature will be around 23 degrees, winds moderate easterlies. And uh, right now, uh, the temperature reading at the observatory is 21 degrees and uh, the relative humidity is uh, 90%. <music> It's now 9.30 with a new summary. Here's Tom Warden. A taxi driver has died after an accident with two trucks at around 4 o'clock this morning on the North Lantau Highway. One of the truck drivers was injured. Drivers are advised to use other roads and the MTR. The Hong Kong Institute of Human Resource Management says it welcomes initiatives to bridge the SAR's talent gap as long as the government keeps local workers' needs in mind. It says checks and balances are needed, including imposing quotas, minimizing the social impact, and retraining Hong Kong workers. Some of the biggest names in technology are calling for a pause in the development of advanced artificial intelligence until appropriate safety measures have been implemented. And Pope Francis has been diagnosed with a respiratory infection and will need to spend several days in hospital. We'll have more news for you at 10 o'clock. Doing housework after a long, busy day can be frustrating. Why not seek help from professionals? Download the ERB Home Services mobile application to enjoy one-stop free referral of local domestic helpers who are well-trained by the Employees Retraining Board. Services include cleaning and cooking, as well as postnatal, elderly, and infant care. For details, please call 182182 or visit erb.org. The Food and Environmental Hygiene Department will allocate some 18,000 extendable public niches located at Wohopshek Columbarium and Cape Collinson Sanha Columbarium. From March 20th to April 17th, online applications can be submitted through the department's website. Application forms can also be obtained from the website or through other means and can be submitted by fax, email or mail or in person. For details, please call 28419111.
Welcome back. This is Back Chat on a Thursday morning with Danny Gittings and me, Janice Wong. Still with us on the program is Kevin Pereira, Managing Director of Blue Artificial Intelligence. Professor Eric Friginal, Head of the Department of English and Communication at the Polytechnic University. And Ryan Whalen, Associate Professor at the University of Hong Kong's Faculty of Law. And uh, also joining us now is Henry Al, the Chief Operating Officer of Algobot Limited. Good morning, Mr. Al. Good morning. Thanks for joining morning, us on the everyone. program. Um, in the first half of the program, or actually just before the news, um, we, we talked about um, the benefits and challenges posed by ChatGPT in education and also um, possible ways to regulate it. Um, do you think uh, the use of ChatGPT can be controlled, um, Mr. Al? I mean, at least at universities and schools, or, or, or in your view, do we just have to learn to live with it? Um, from my point of view, I think, you know, all kind of this kind of... Uh, computer assistant thing is a tool for everyone, not only students. Just like when I remember when we had the first search engine in the mid-90s, I was used uh, teaching MBA in the Hong Kong University as well. You know, students starting to search for their results or answers for their you know, question or research or even for the paper. Uh, in early stage, we find that you know people just copying all the content to the, to the, to the paper and then get the answer right. But very soon we find that your know, students evolving, you know, they, they, they learn from the answer and then the evolving is to, you know, writing their own answer or consolidate or summarize all this answer into a better answer. That's the, I think that is the main concept about research is we read a lot of different things and then summarize to get a better answer. And that's all we will see, I would say, we will see, you know, in the future for chat GDP, I would see it as a tool instead of just a kind of assistant, more than a, more than a, you know, more than a hand or, or eye for the student to finish the work. But you need to have some time to, you know, for the, for the whole community to digest it and learn how to use it instead of just copying. But the problem is that ChatGPT, you, you're saying how students learn from the internet and then they summarise, but ChatGPT is already summarising for the students, so they don't need to do, um, they don't need to do that summarising step anymore. Yes. Just imagine, when the time when we don't have internet, for example, I'm a photographer, I'm researching something, I, buy, I want to buy a little camera, so I bought a lot of different magazines who review the camera for me, right? Because I can't do the review for myself. So... That article from the magazine is already a kind of summarization on all this kind of research. And then, but very soon I find that, you know, every single magazine have their own opinions. So I need to read a lot of different magazines in order to consolidate and summarize the opinion for myself. Same as ChatGDP. Now we only have one ChatGDP, of course. Just like the old day, we only have one Yahoo search. And then we have Microsoft search. And then we have Google. Okay, of course, at the end of the day, one of them may be dominate the whole market because they are better. But that is the time we need to make the industry or the tools to be, you know, growing up, evolving. I'm sure, you know, very soon we have more than 10 different kind of this kind of AI assistance who is going to help us. And at that time, which one are you going to use? Which one do you believe? Which one are you going to, you know, to, to use it to finish your work? Maybe I need to use three of them and then consolidate the answer into one. And then maybe the other two is coming out to consolidate all this kind of answer from the chat GDP as well. 
All right. I have a message here from a listener, David, and uh, he he just wants to share his views. He says, um, "Chat GPT has a lot of good points, but it will get weaponized, which would uh, defeat the objective." And uh, he goes on to say that uh, a few years ago there was a computer glitch in America, and someone had enough intelligence not to push the big red button and start a nuclear war. If we have a、uh, Chat GPT thinking for itself, things may not be、uh, so lucky next time. And then he also says many job interviews are done by computer, which means the computer will make the decision on who to employ and kick out all the proper skilled talent, and、uh, we will get more idiots in control of the world.、Um, that is、uh, from David.、Um, so, Kevin, any any response to that? I mean, does Chat? I mean, this is important. Actually, does Chat GPT really think for itself? I mean. The- The questions are asked about that, aren't they? Yeah, so I think it's important to remember that it's a tool, right? And fundamentally, what it's, it's using doing, information, isn't it? It's using information, but it's just putting words in front of each other. I, I know it,、yeah. it's really good at that, but that's effectively it what it's trying、like、to do. It seems like it's thinking, doesn't it?、Mm-hmm. It seems like it's thinking, but actually, it's just、um, it's analyzing patterns, isn't it? From、right. Billions and billions of words.、It's、correct, right? So looking at the corpus of data and then figuring out kind of what to do from there.、Uh, one of the things, maybe in response to the comment, though, would also be to think about when humans make decisions about who to employ. There's implicit biases there as well, right? right? So I think another thing to also kind of consider is, okay, you know, maybe、uh, we are maybe reluctant to use computers to make some of these decisions, but how much do we trust human beings to make these decisions as well? Something I actually ask my、um, students in the class is, how many of you would get on a plane with no human pilot? And actually, m- many people say no because they're worried about it. But then you're going to argue, aren't you, that the、um, the the machine pilot would actually be safer? I mean, we've seen this with、um, automated cars already, haven't we?、Mm-hmm. That、uh, statistically, automated cars are safer than human drivers, although people don't necessarily feel that way. Correct. So I think part of this, when you're using AI, is also about capability. But the other pers- other part is trust as well. And I think both of those have to be present for things to become widely adopted. And this is not necessarily just ChatGPT, but I'm talking about AI in general. We see that from a lot of the consulting work that we do. Is you need for for AI solutions, you need both、uh, capability and also trust. And sometimes having the combination of human and AI together allows people to feel that trust, which is why when I think it comes to jobs in the larger kind of discussion, many of what we'll see is a combination rather than AI being like the full substitution. Which again, I think is just something interesting on a philosophical level to think right. about. Right, and, and Kevin, you just mentioned,、uh, mentioned jobs.、Um, Goldman Sachs it, it just published a report、uh, this、mm-hmm. week saying that、uh, as many as 300 million full-time jobs around the world could be automated in some way by the newest wave of art. Artificial intelligence that includes our ChatGPT.、Um, I'll just go to Mr. Al first.、Um, what kind of jobs do you think will be most affected, Mr. Al? I think、um, first of all, you know, those jobs which require,、um, I mean, at a lower tier of the、uh, the hierarchy, which you know, operating or writing something in a daily basis, for example, even customer service. You know, in a, I worked for Citibank in、uh, in the late nineties. We already develop system which is how you know the、um, you know the、um, the call centers staff to reply to any call for customer service. We 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 give them all the answers. For example, customer asking something. Okay, how can I open my account? And then right away on the screen, they have all the standard answers on the screen. So we make the training on any of these stuff very quick. And then imagine in the old day, we need to train a staff for three months in order for them to sit in the call center to answer call, right? But now, only three days, or even maybe only three hours. So by then, all this kind of stuff, we don't care when or how or how many of them is going to leave the company, and we can hire another bunch of 
you know, staff to replace them right away. Sorry, so you've you actually you've put your finger on something there. You say you don't care how many will leave the company. I mean, that, that's precisely what many workers will worry about, won't they? That uh, employers uh, will. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that I don't care. Oh, but but uh, not you personally, but that other employers can. Yeah. We need to enhance and retraining the, the staff, like ourselves. You know, I, I, I'm an engineer as, as, as in an university. Then I learn, I, I learn IT. Then I learn, yeah, I study MBA. Then I, I teach MBA as well. I evolving myself in my whole career. I'm sure, you know, all the people need to be, you know, keep upgrading by themselves. Not just you know, stay in the same position for long, right? Because and because when you're using new tools, you learn the new, learning the new tools, then you have increasing your value in your job. I mean, that's, that's the, the, the only way, you know, we keep ourselves alive. But on the other hand, there's a lot of people which can't, you know, increase their valuation. I mean, this like increase their value in their jobs role. I think, you know, the government or the uh, educational sector, we, we need to, you know, group together to see how we are going to make this happen. Make them, you know, to learn more new stuff, new stuff so that they can, you know, give them more contribution to their job. Right. Okay. Professor, Professor Friginal? I mean, listening to that, are you are you worried that maybe in a few years' time uh, we don't we won't need uh, lecturers or professors anymore? <laughs> I'm, I'm very no way. Keeping on the hopeful side, Janet, in terms of there are, however, some jobs which uh, obviously for our high school kids right now to think about really how do I see uh, uh, AI and ChatGPT uh, potentially influencing my career choice? You know, so uh, advertising is going to change. Uh, content creation online on the internet, journalism will change, right? Copywriting, copy editing, um, you know, people who are focusing on translation across different languages, there will be differences. And some may actually feel like, hey, my job is going to be affected uh, by this. So in the future, planning, what will work? Planning, what could actually be the new, uh, what, what is new journalism in the future? What is new advertising? It's for big universities to uh, start positioning the themselves in terms of how can we uh, utilize the tool and the technology and offer the jobs for the future. You know, so that Goldman Sachs um, article where it's telling us that, hey, it's going to uh, really produce all of these changes and new paradigm shifts. It's for us to figure out what will those be and if we can prepare our learners and our uh, students uh, to get into these new types of careers, then that will be uh, one way in how we can measure successes um, across the board. Ryan, Ryan Whalen? Uh, yeah, so I mean, it's important for us to remember that we've been worried about technology replacing workers since at least the late 19th century uh, when the Luddites were, were storming factories and busting up machines because they didn't want to lose their jobs. And those worries have largely uh, failed to materialize. Uh, in fact, the opposite has occurred. Labor force participation has trended up as the production and adoption of new technologies has. So there's always this concern, especially when there's a major technological development, something that, that we call a general purpose technology like generative AI that has applications across a whole lot of industries. There's always concern that it's going to change the labor force, and that's almost certain at this point. But what that will do is it will add efficiency, and some jobs certainly will change dramatically or maybe even cease to exist, but there will be new jobs that we can't yet imagine, and then a whole lot of other jobs that simply can't be automated or at least yet have very little uh, interaction with generative AI. And it will free people to work on other things, right? Like, so maybe 
in some far distant future, my job as a lecturer won't exist. But you know, if I want to, I could work as a woodworker. I could spend time at home carving really neat little birds or something. Uh, and this is there's always this concern that people are all going to be thrown out of work, but it has never come to fruition. And I'm highly skeptical that that it's going to happen just because uh, ChatGPT is on the market. Well, we, we've seen, I mean, you see some sort of blue-collar workers, and then their tasks have been automated, and then there are whole, whole groups of workers whose their jobs just don't exist anymore if you go back 20 or 30 years. I mean, people answer telephones and to some extent, um, some secretarial tasks. So why, why should it necessarily some, be different? Some specific, jobs, some specific jobs do change or, or disappear, but overall, labor force participation has trended up very steadily, almost in line with the adoption of technology. So I don't see why... ChatGPT is going to be any different in that regard. And uh, Professor Whalen, um, before the news, uh, you're talking about uh, how it's uh, still too early to uh, regulate uh, ChatGPT. But, but what about guidelines for for universities, for example? I mean, different universities have their own guidelines. I mean, should there be like a unified guideline for for all um, uh, different uh, different universities or schools? So uh, I think eventually we'll probably uh, coalesce on some some standardization across universities, and it will vary, again, based on discipline. I, I do similarly still feel that it's probably a little too early at this stage, and there is value to be had in a diversity of approaches because that will help us see which policies work and which policies don't work. So letting universities kind of fend for themselves at this point will allow us to learn uh, the best ways to implement uh, generative AI in the classroom and in universities more generally. And then once we do learn from experience and from others' experience, then we can perhaps coalesce on, on more standardized policies. Uh, Kevin Pereira, putting your technology hat on and just slightly tongue-in-cheek, uh, sometimes we have difficulty uh, finding guests on uh, Backchat. Um, how, how many years do you think it will be before we could invite ChatGPT on to talk about a topic on Backchat? Uh, you know, uh, who knows, I guess, because I think when you have development of AI, it tends to be exponential rather than linear. So the crystal ball, I think, is kind of cloudy because of the development there. That being said, I think to uh, automate humor, wit, charm, uh, hopefully that'll be, a, that'll be a little bit of time. That's my uh, honest hope. Uh, well, so you think it's still some way, way off? Uh, because uh, the, the practical side of having the, the, a ChatGPT speak, that's uh, just the technical matter. That can be done very easily, can't it? Yeah, and, and you know, the responses, yeah. Uh, and, and the generative AI discussion we've had here is focused just on ChatGPT. But there right. are other areas like, for example, a generative AI building pictures and therefore building video as well, right? And so I think there are things like Midjourney and a bunch of other areas of generative AI that can produce output in different ways as well. So I've also seen, you know, folks thinking about uh, for small businesses, can they use generative AI to A, write the ad uh, in terms of the text, B, use generative AI images to be able to create the commercials, and then have voiceovers to take that chat GPT uh, output and then actually add a human voice to it as well. Right. So I think generative AI is, we've talked about one aspect, but there's other aspects as well. And I think once they all come together, that I think will multiply the possibilities for generative AI, where I'm personally very excited about it. All right. And let's go back to, uh, quickly to uh, Mr. Al. Mr. Al? Um, yeah. And we were talking about uh, ChatGPT, how um, how maybe uh, young people should be uh, should learn about it uh, at a young age. What advice do you have for for uh, young I mean, people? Kind, kindergarten kids. Well, <laughs> that, might be too, that might be too young. <laughs> I don't know. No, I, I have two kids already. My my uh, my elder one is now twenty one already. And uh, you know, I I would say yes. I would I would love to to, to let them learn the truth, but I think. Uh, as all the uh, the other the other 
other people are saying we need to give them some guy nice. Okay, just just like any learning any new things. For example, you know, if when you're learning driving at the first time, we need to have a guy nice. But how are we going to draw this nice? Is important at the early beginning. But uh, as somebody saying, you know, um, we, it's still, still too early to see, you know, what is the lies laying on. You know, we, we need to, you know, we, we need to observe and see how the things are going. Um, uh, Professor Frigido, I, I said that's a joke, but um, is, is kindergarten too early to start teaching uh, uh, kids about ChatGPT? I, 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 I'm ready for uh, for that. I see it as a benefit. Uh, uh, you know, I agree with what Ryan was saying. I mean, eventually in the future, this is going to be part of our everyday, so it's never too early at this stage. Uh, there will be some shifts. There will be some paradigms uh, that will change, particularly for my purposes in writing. I'm just really hopeful that... Uh, you know, instead of just the creation of an essay, my students are now going to be focusing on editing skills, on reading skills, and then the reading and writing connection is going to be more intensified. So for me, it's displacing one area, which is the beginning of a creation of an idea, but there will be a lot of these new exciting skills that my students are going to be learning from it. It's something different from them and something different from my own paradigm as a writer and as a teacher. But the future, to me, looks like, hey, we're still utilizing our mind. We're still critically thinking about it. We are creatively engaged about it. Uh, I, I am just really fascinated by how entertained I am in utilizing ChatGPT. And, and it uh, allows me to also, hey, uh, you know, I can create a poem in the style of a five-year-old or a 15-year-old uh, and, and, and uh, look at what's happening and look at what it's helping me produce. So I'm very hopeful and I'm very encouraged about the tool. All right, uh, Professor Friginal, we'll have to leave it here for now. Thanks again for joining us this morning. And that's uh, Professor Eric Friginal, head of the Department of English and Communication at the Polytechnic University. Many thanks also to Henry L, the Chief Operating Officer of Algobot Limited, and also Kevin Pereira, Managing Director of Blue Artificial Intelligence, and Ryan Whelan, Associate Professor at the University of Hong Kong's Faculty of Law. It's now 9.49, and uh, in a moment, uh, we'll turn to our next topic about mysterious solar panels that recently washed up on the shores of a Hong Kong marine park. 95 years of public service broadcasting. Stay tuned with Hong Kong. Hello, I'm Michael Wong, the Deputy Financial Secretary. For the past 95 years, our THK has shared a common journey with Hong Kong people. Going forward, I trust that our THK will continue to provide Hong Kong with more programs that are rich in content and that can move our hearts. 95 years of public service broadcasting. 95 years. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. With Hong Kong. You're listening to Backchat. Call us on 233-88-266 and have your say. Now, 200 solar panels were found washed up along the shore of the Sha Chao and Lung Ku Chao Marine Park earlier this month. So far, it's not known who they belong to, but uh, authorities say they will remove the panels this week. To uh, tell us more, we're now joined on the line by Greenpeace campaigner Tom Ng. Good morning, Mr Ng. Good morning. Thanks for joining us on the program. Um, can you first tell us more about these panels? Um, when were they uh, found washed up on the shoreline? Um, so we are not sure when it is uh, when did it get to Hong Kong and get to this uh, shoreline, but um, some 
a beach cleanup activist uh, on Facebook, they posted uh, this solar panel like a wash up at the shoreline uh, on one on Tuesday, actually, yeah, on Tuesday. So uh, it might come here, come to this uh, marine park uh, around this week, around like in my in March. And how how toxic are they actually? Do they pose a hazard? Um, we don't know if they're te- uh, toxic or not usually, but uh, because like when we make solar panel, there will be a lot of chemical inside. So uh, according to like pictures we can see on Facebook or other uh, media, like uh, there are twen- two, uh, there is around two hundred fling of solar panel that are uh, floating uh, device on this floating device, but. Some of them are only the flames, so probably some of the solar panels have dropped into the ocean already. And also we can see from the pictures, like a lot of these solar panels are broken. Um, so solar panels usually do not have, uh, do, do not release toxic material usually when they're not broken. But uh, as we can see in these pictures, they're broken and the water can rush their chemical stuff out of it, and that might be toxic. So in a solar panel, usually we will see lead, cadmium or acid, something like that. So those are like heavy metal. When the portion is high, it might cause cancer to some animals or even human if it's like a huge level. Um, so these solar panels are at the shoreline. So there are also fishes or other marine life in that area, especially if it's a marine park, right? So uh, it might damage the um, ecosystem there. And it's a bit of a mystery where they came from, isn't it? Because the water supplies department and the drainage services department, which operate the floating solar panel farms, say none of their panels are missing. Yeah, so two government departments in Hong Kong uh, right now, they have floating solar panels and they say uh, these panels are not theirs. But um, there are also other parties in Hong Kong, such as some some people with private lakes or uh, some people with private land, they might have uh, floating solar panels as well. And um, so this might come from them or not. We don't know yet because, like, uh, you can tell the weather is quite rush these few weeks. And solar panels, that they are floating. So they might come from other regions, like a bigger area like uh, China, maybe, or even further away, they might come from Southeast Asia. So we don't know that yet. And they're not quite chaseable for now because um, according to what we can see from uh, the government release, they say that those they do not have like information on this solar panel. They do not have a code or a address or something like that. So it's not quite traceable right now. Right, it's not traceable. But uh, will we be able to find out if they came from Hong Kong, for example, or, or somewhere else? Um, we can right now. We know that it's not coming from the. Uh, it's not owned by the Hong Kong government. Um, but if it's coming from Hong Kong, we don't know that yet. So we know that the Hong Kong government have sent out people to uh, starting to clean, uh, clean it up. Uh, they say that when the weather is better, they will do that. So probably when they start like uh, breaking this down and then uh, taking care of them, maybe we will have more information on this, like where this coming from, who owns these panels. Now, this is the first time we've really, actually it's really the first time that solar panels has really come to attention in, in, in Hong Kong. We, we don't use them as much as in um, some other countries. And uh, does, does Greenpeace have any more general environmental concerns about the use of solar panels in Hong Kong? Or is this, is, do you consider uh, solar panels as almost universally a good thing? 
Yeah, uh, well, solar panels bring us a lot of green uh, benefits, to be honest. Like, uh, they reduce a lot of green, uh, greenhouse gas compared to many other power. But um, because solar panel is also a type of uh, e-waste, electronic waste, so one day we have to take care of all this really, uh, electronic waste uh, in the future. So um, Hong Kong, we have a solar panel boom. Like a lot of people install solar panel starting about five years ago, like 2017-18, uh, when we have the fit-in tariff policy that was launched in 2018. A lot more solar panels were installed. Um, and a lifespan of solar panel um, is about 15 to 25 years. So in the future, like, maybe as soon as 2030 or something like that, uh, we might have a huge amount of solar waste that we need to take care of. And um, in Europe, we can see that uh, because the solar boom, like the, the, the time when people install solar were in about 2020, so they were like 20 years before us, um, they already uh, have policy that support solar panel recycling. They have like policy or they have law that compulsory manufacturer to recycle their material, uh, the solar panel material. Because in the solar panel, we have like, uh, like I said earlier, we have some toxic chemical inside, uh, but at the same time, we have glasses, um, uh, silicon, silver, and plastic and other metals that are recyclable. So um, we hope that, uh, and then we think that this time, like this solar panel washing up in Hong Kong is a great opportunity for us to consider that oh, Hong Kong is going to face this um, huge amount of solar waste one day in the future, and we don't have uh, any facility to take care of this kind of solar waste. We don't have a policy, we don't have a law that uh, makes sure people recycle them, make sure people treat it properly. I think it's a good opportunity, good opportunity that we start thinking about this future problem. All right, you said those, uh, right now we don't have anywhere to uh, process these uh, waste. I mean, what do people do right now when they throw away their solar panels? So right now the uh, waste solar panel is very, it's not that much because most of the solar panel is quite new. Only a few that are damaged need to be uh, taken care of. So some of the manufacturers in Hong Kong, they would take your solar panel and bring it back to uh, where the manufacturer is usually not in Hong Kong, probably in China or Korea or something like that, and they will uh, recycle it there. But one day in the future when we have a lot of solar panel, how are we going to do that? It's going to be very costly to ship it away, and probably um, some places would, will reject this foreign waste like coming from Hong Kong. So we need something, we need a facility in Hong Kong. And without a facility, this solar panel may just end up in, so, uh, in the landfill. But despite the difficulties of recycling, you presumably say from an environmental perspective, the um, environmental advantages of solar panels outweigh the disadvantages. Oh, sorry, I couldn't hear. Sorry, the, the environmental benefits of uh, solar panels are stronger than these uh, disadvantages about uh, problems about recycling, right? There's more well, benefits than, it, than costs. Well, there is a lot of uh, environmental problems that we're facing right now. Like climate change is one of the huge ones and waste is also one of it. So when we are talking about like environmental benefits, like things we need to do to benefit the environment, we need to talk about the circular economy. So we cannot solve one problem and create another problem that is huge. So a, a better way would be we, cre we continue using renewable energy using solar, solar panel or wind farm. But at the same time, we make sure these products, like this solar panel or wind farm, uh, like the fan thing, uh, they are getting well treated in the whole life cycle of these products instead of just one phase of their time. All right. So, so what, what advice do you have for the government? 
Well, for the government, first they have to investigate what uh, where this come from, and they have to take care of them, uh, make sure they don't continue like damage the ocean or toxic the ocean. Um, but uh, in the future, we think the Hong Kong government need to start uh, making something like a we. Uh, we have like the we part in Hong Kong, which take care of e-waste. Um, the government initiate this and make sure the. Uh, computer screen and refrigerator things like that get all right, well Mr. treated. All right, Mr. Ng, thanks again for joining us this morning. That's uh, Greenpeace campaigner Tom Ng. Many thanks also to you who commented or emailed us today and of course to our guest presenter Danny Gittings and producer Kaha. I'll be back with another edition of Back Chat tomorrow with Andrew Work.